Mr. Robot. Season 2, Episode 5, Logic Bomb is over, but we're just getting started here on Post Show Recaps. Hello, everybody. I'm Josh Wiggler, and I am joined here by a man who's going to need a whole lot of caffeine if he is to survive this podcast. Antonio Mazzaro. Antonio, how's it going? Not too bad, Josh. What's your favorite form of caffeine? My favorite form of caffeine is a, a cold, a nice cold brew coffee is where I'm at. Everybody's talking about this cold brew I'm coffee I'm into the cold now. brew. I'm feeling the cold brew these days. I don't understand. What is cold brew? It's cold like bro. you brew the coffee, then you like make it cold in the fridge overnight, and you rebrew it, and you put some ice cubes in there, and you drink it, and it's delicious. Oh, my gosh. All right. Whatever. It's fantastic. But mm-hmm. I think that no amount of cold brew coffee was going to help the people who were uh, tragically murdered by the end of Mr. Robot, Episode 5 of Season 2. No, uh, caffeine was not going to do anything. And some of them were putting food in their mouths as this was happening. Caffeine was not going to save them. That was not going to save them unless there is some action hero out there named Caffeine who could have swept in and saved the day. Uh, hey, we ended on a cliffhanger. We don't know. That might still happen. Yeah, Captain Cold Brew is in, <laughs> he's in, he's in the wind somewhere. Captain Cold Brew. Captain Cold Brew. All right, let's talk about Logic Bomb, fifth episode, or at least the fifth hour of Mr. Robot Season 2. Numbering is a little bit confusing here, uh, but things are really starting to pick up. Shortest, shortest episode of the season so far. Uh, still a ton happening. I think that some of the questions about pacing, I feel like a lot of people were a lot happier with the pacing of this episode. I know you and I, Antonio, we've already been happy with the pacing of season two, but I feel like this was, uh, to, to put it mildly, I feel like a very agreeable episode of Mr. Robot. Yeah, it's unfortunate that you have to shoot people and uh, <laughs> kidnap people and rendite people, if you want, if that's a word, in order to please the masses, Josh, but c'est la vie. I think that there was more to this episode than that, for sure, but there was a lot of murder, there was a lot of death, there was a lot of punching, there was a lot of kicking, a lot of screaming, and a lot of plot development as well and tons to pick apart thematically i think you know these questions of dual identities and the you know the black and white that exists in every person not just elliot with himself and mr robot but i think a lot of dual personalities are emerging here as well and certainly elliot getting back into the game both in terms of the larger narrative uh trying to get back in with f society and trying to help out darlene but also getting you know a little bit of uh, the dexter cravings once again Oh yeah, that scratching that itch that exists somewhere in his body. He's gonna, he needs to make some blood slides. He needs to make some discs. He needs to uh, exterminate some things. He needs, he's back in Rohit territory, but a hard right turn from there. Uh, way worse. And Elliot's not in the best spot. And yeah, his dual personalities. Mr. Robot is saying, let's ignore that. And Elliot is saying, I can't ignore it. And so here we are. All right, so let's start talking about the episode before we dive in. Just as always, a reminder that you cannot miss a single episode of Mr. Robot Season 2 coverage here on Post Show Recaps. If you subscribe to postshowrecaps.com slash Mr. Robot iTunes, MR Robot iTunes, you can always get your questions and feedback into us as well. We have an email address, Mr. Robot at postshowrecaps.com, or you can send it through our feedback form, postshowrecaps.com slash feedback. Let's dive into the episode every episode so far this season has begun with a flashback until logic bomb until this week which just picks up basically if not exactly where we left off the week earlier when elliot said i'm gonna hack the fbi then pretty darn close he is certainly showing us what it looks like when elliot alderson is at a terminal and when he is really in the zone this is his shiz yeah, and I know he says that, basically. And I know, Josh, that one of the very important or 
uh, revealing things about this scene of Elliot hacking. And we're going to get into the five-step process because I think it's illustrative of a lot of things that are going on in the show, not just what happens with Elliot and Ray. But one of the things stylistically that's going on right from the jump in this scene is that Elliot's world, as it is around him, as he's doing the hack, is not exactly as the world actually appears to an uninterested outside observer. Yeah, no, it's not. I mean, he is at least in control of dimming the lights and turning them back on again when reality invades his reality. You know, he is locked in. He is in the zone. He's giving us the five steps. He is in the dark. And then suddenly the lights come on and Lone Star out of nowhere is just appearing over Elliot. Um, clearly, this is not, you know, this darkened room that Elliot is in when he's hacking. That's not the real, you know, reality of what Elliot is actually in. And I think that that's very instructive as far as the theories of, is Elliot actually where he is claiming to be, where he is being presented as? Is he actually at his mom's house? Is he actually just in this quiet neighborhood removed from F society and society at large? Uh, I think that this is a real point in the column that Elliot is able to alter his reality visually for the audience at the very least. Yeah. And this is a really clear establishment of that. You're saying that, and I agree, that this scene, more than anything, sort of in a subtle way, makes clear that the reality that we see Elliot in is a reality that he creates oftentimes, and that can include what the world around him actually looks like. So it does open the door, I think, to just about any of those interpretations about what Elliot's situation might be. Is every scene we're seeing with Elliot exactly as it appears or not? We're definitely get into that with some of the scenes at his mom's house in this episode. But yeah, I think a very clever, kind of subtle way to establish that very clearly in this scene. Very cool stylistic touches that you're getting. Uh, I'm sure in part because Sam Esmail is directing every episode of this season. We're seeing a lot of these touches and flair that that really directly connect over a course of episodes that you wouldn't necessarily see under different directors. So I do think that you're right. I think that's important. Uh, And it's not just important stylistically. He's also talking about this five-stage plan. Uh, And the five-stage plan is central to everything that uh, Elliot is doing in this episode, whether it's getting back with F Society or whether it's what's going on with with Elliot himself. I think there's a, a lot of reverse in that. Yeah. So what's Elliot actually up to? You know, he ended the episode previous to this one saying, I'm hacking the FBI. Uh, That was his plan. I'm going to hack the FBI. Now, what is he doing right now? How is his plan coming into effect? This is a test pilot. Do you have your hoodie up or down right now? My hoodie is up right now. Oh, that's what I thought. Yeah, I'm I'm in full ghost prose right now. Yeah, so he says he wants to identify the target and its flaws. He talks about when he was a kid, his first hack as an 11-year-old was the public library, and it was a test basically to see if he can even get in. So first you identify your target. In this case, he's talking about the FBI, and its flaws are an Android phone system that they use, and he had kind of identified that at the end of last episode. So then the second thing is building some malware and preparing the attack. He calls the malware a programmatic expression of his will. We see him doing the programming of the malware that he's going to use. 
And then he talks about building a reverse shell two-stage exploit. That's something he's going to use to gather a bunch of data in the case of the FBI. He talks about how he's going to set up this program, which essentially is his own cell tower. It will be a piece of hardware that we later in the episode learn that's what he wants Angela to put in in the area. Well, I don't know if he wants Angela to do that. Well, we can yes. get into that for yes. sure. There's, the, the Angela will necessarily need to be involved to place this piece of hardware, and that sets up the two-stage exploit. It allows him to gather a bunch of data from their phones, uh, reverse hack their email, things like that. Elliot calls this the secret of a perfect hack because the second stage, I think, is making it infallible via the episode title, via a logic bomb. A logic bomb, as he describes it, is malicious code designed to execute under circumstances I've programmed. It makes the memory self-corrupt or explode. And so this is the thing where if they find the hack or if something is going on, this is a protection for it. This is a way out. This is a, a, a kill switch, if you will, that destroys their tracks, that uh, prevents the, the people that are being hacked from using the hacked information to gather a backdoor into someone else. Uh, this is, I think, important because... It's talking about – the, the talking about logic bomb comes up later when you talk about reaching a circumstance or getting into a position where something has exploded, uh, something has happened, and it's causing a serious problem in the middle of the hack. Then after that, you write the script or as part of that, you write the script so that you know when and how everything will run. It puts you in control because you're controlling the situation as how it is arranged. That's a major part of his hack. So he's basically saying, I'm going to write the script so that I know exactly how everything will execute, when the logic bomb will happen, when this will happen, when that will happen. So writing the script yourself is important. Being involved yourself is important. Then the final thing is launching the attack, and doing so gives you God access, which Elliot describes as a feeling which never gets old. So the, with the FBI plan, it really is identifying the FBI and its flaws, which is their phone system. Elliot is building some malware to prepare uh, for the attack. He's setting up this two-stage exploit, and he's writing the script himself, so he knows how everything's going to play out, and then he needs Darlene's help, essentially, to help launch the attack, and Darlene's choice is to involve Angela. Okay, so all of that is happening, and Elliot's plan, I mean, for a guy who was completely disconnected from the internet for five weeks, he's really hopped back into it, not just with this huge, audacious plan to take, to, you know, to take on the FBI here, um, but also simultaneously, as we said, he's getting a little bit of the Dexter feeling again. He's getting a little bit of that craving as it's going to play out throughout the episode. But it starts even now when the lights do come back on and Lone Star is there. That's when Elliot's going to say, like, I need to talk to the old system administrator. Uh, I'm, he, you know, he basically needs to talk to RT. Uh, and why does he need to talk to RT if it's just a simple site migration, which Elliot should be able to do in his sleep? Already, yeah, already at this point, it seems like he wants to start poking around. Exactly. He he describes it as some kind of set of uh, encrypted users and some database. He uses basic terms to imply that there are things that he can't access, that he needs to access. It, it's funny because the site migration is clearly very secondary to what he's doing when the lights are off and he's in the zone. He's focused solely on the FBI hack and the IRC chats with Darlene and setting all of that up. When the lights come back on, he dismisses it with a very quick, like, oh, I just need to talk to the old sysadmin. Right. So it's, it's not 
clear 100% if he's getting this guy involved because he wants to scratch the itch or because he's looking to push this down the road. But regardless, I, I think it's clear that it, it, he's more interested in doing the FBI thing now, but he's very interested in the Ray situation. He's not just going to not do it or set it up. It's too interesting for him to ignore. There's a reason, Josh, why, uh, and I don't know exactly what the full details are, but there's a reason why he's going to Ray for this repeated access, and he's not just going to his house and using his own system, when if he really needed to get online, he could do that. And we'll talk about whether or not we still feel that he's in some sort of situation that he can't leave, uh, and this is his only access to computers, or if the Ray situation is really too interesting for him to pass up. But I do think that's part of it. All right, lots to talk about with Elliot throughout this episode. Also, lots to talk about with DDP. Grace Gummer as Dom DiPiero is going to have a huge, huge episode this week it starts off her trail you know her her investigation into f society it continues it takes her to steel mountain or the place that was formerly known as steel mountain now known as steel valley what do you think of the name upgrade is this is this an upgrade or is it a downgrade right i think it's pretty terrible actually (laughs) it's pretty terrible (laughs) that was great when she said that yeah i think it's a downgrade you don't want to push the mountain into the valley josh i think that's uh that's harmful to the environment there are streams that run through that valley the rocks from the mountain contain chemicals you just don't want to do this. Stay Man. on the mountain. Yes. Maybe just rebrand the mountain. You know, yeah. like Vibranium Mountain. <laughs> you like that? Unobtainium Mountain? Unobtainium Mountain. Yeah, that's yeah. what you should rename. Adamantium Mountain. Adamantium Mountain. Adamantium mountain. Absolutely. cool. Uh, so that's the, that's the thing. The new thing is that she sees, uh, you know, the raspberry pie that Elliot obviously put there at the, um, the midpoint of season one back during the whole Steel Mountain break-in. This is going to be very big, potentially, a very potentially big win for DDP, assuming that everything stays legit with that raspberry pie throughout the episode. Yeah, which, uh, of course, it doesn't, as no. we come to find out. Uh, in the middle of the moment, though, it is questionable. Uh, how long do they keep their video surveillance footage? Would there be video surveillance footage of Elliot at some point? The Raspberry Pi was placed a long time before the actual hack was executed. As we know, there was a, there was definitely a period of a few weeks to maybe close to a month, I think. He was rushing to get it done by a certain date in April. That didn't work, and then the hack was executed on 5-9. So there is a time period there where they might not be able to identify that it was him but look they've got nothing but time in investigating this so if the surveillance tapes are there and they're not deleted they may be able to go back and find footage of elliot well the, if they're Mountain. not deleted thing is probably the big one because we already know that tyrell wellick has helped elliot out on a few things you know uh you know taking out the honey pot all of that is it possible that tyrell has already taken care of this uh could someone else have taken care of this so who knows how that'll play out but it's an interesting point to ponder is there going to be surveillance on elliot here at steel steel mountain or shall i say steel valley well yeah and the, the, the other point on deleting this sort of thing is that's in large part what the FBI hack is about, not only finding what information was there, but maybe erasing other previous details. Although I do wonder, and we'll get into this as we talk about the Angela situation in this episode, I do wonder if that's completely truthful. I do wonder if there's any digital footprint left at all, if not, if that's not something that was covered up immediately, but if that's not an excuse that the Dark Army and F Society and Darlene, and essentially Elliot, is using to get Angela involved in the situation. All right, well, let's talk about Angela. Let's talk about Darlene. This is kind of Darlene's move. I guess it does 
doesn't showing matter. up. Yeah, I don't. I guess it doesn't matter if it's Elliot's house or anyone else's house. Darlene just shows up at it will your just house. Show up. Yeah. So Angela, you know, she steps outside and suddenly there's Darlene in her place. Uh, it's the first time that Darlene and Angela have seen each other in five weeks. We come to find out. Um, seems like a little bit of friction between these two. Yeah, well, imagine that. Uh, imagine that somebody shows up in your place sight unseen, you haven't seen in a long time, and it's somebody that you already associate a few negative thoughts with. I think this could be a problem for sure. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know that they're in the best of terms at this point. Keep in mind as well, Angela's sort of gone into the belly of the beast. 100%. Yeah, Hondo. So she's not, she's not really somebody who Darlene would love to see. They should seemingly be at odds considering who they are as people. And the interesting thing, I think, that we haven't really talked about on this podcast and hasn't really been covered on this season of Mr. Robot is there's a knowledge there. There's a knowledge that they both know that Elliot knows that Angela was involved with that disc that was probably involved with the five, nine hack. We haven't talked about Angela really carrying around that on her back, that she's been inside evil corp this whole time, knowing that she probably played a part in taking them down, that she has this big secret that she's been involved in. The FBI hasn't come to talk to her yet, which is interesting. I don't know why that would be, but they both know Darlene and Angela both know that Angela knows and that Angela carries this around. So I think that that's very fascinating. I think it's further fueled by the fact that when we see Darlene as Angela enters this scene, Darlene is making a copy, a clone of Angela's disc image on her computer. Yeah. Why are you doing that? Darlene just probably clones everybody's computer. It's got to be like one of the top three things that she does as soon as she moves into your place. She eats your food in your fridge. She puts her feet all over your furniture and she clones your computer. This is somebody that you wouldn't want to date online. Like, you just wouldn't want because sometimes they're cyber stalking, or you know, you meet somebody or whatever, you look them up, you Google them, whatever. Darlene's not Googling you. She's finding a way to come to your house, set up some device that steals all of your data and information and looking deep into your life. Frightening. Very frightening. Not, she's a scary person, she is, she is a very scary person. We, she, is a, she is a very scary proposition for Angel, although she repeats, this is simple. You're going to want to say no. You're going to want to scream out that it's an awful idea, but just remind yourself, this is simple. Uh, and what she wants, very simply, is for Angela to go to the FBI level at E-Corp, put a device in that floor somewhere to be determined, I suppose, um, and walk away. And we will take care of the rest of it and all of these loose ends with the CD. They will all be wrapped up. Angela does not seem to want to do this. Angela says, I'll take my chances. Yeah, and it's part of stage two and stage three of the hack, as we talked about, that Elliot has built this mall where he needs a delivery device. This is something with the Raspberry Pi that they were able to do on their own when they set up the 5.9 hack. They don't have that kind of time, nor do they have that kind of access. Angela is the perfect bill in this situation. She's the perfect social backdoor into an area that they need. And the thing is that Darlene has specifically identified the flaws that Angela has, namely that her ass is on the line for the five, nine hack, that she's somebody that's already in the crosshairs. So that would be Darlene identifying her target, Angela, identifying its flaws. The malware's already built. They're preparing the attack and you're setting, you're setting all this thing up, all these things up. 
So it isn't just this hack of the FBI that's going on. I think in this episode, both with Elliot and with Angela, there are hacks that are going on by different people. People are identifying their exploits, their tar- you know, their flaws, setting things up, controlling them, writing the script out so that they're essentially in control of everything, and then launching the attacks so that they're in a very position. They're very much in a position of power over their target, the God access that Elliot is talking about. So I do think that's what's happening with Darlene and Angela. Darlene very pointedly at the end of this scene after angela says she will take her chances darlene slips in a i hope for elliot and your sake no one else knows about that cd yeah and at that point if you hadn't been watching the previously on you know that prince ali is going to be entering the scene very soon oh ali ababwa yeah that's the guy that's the one so more on that in Jenny a little Fleck, bit. show some respect on one knee Josh. no Ali's no respect coming. no respect to this prince ali he is a he is a total dweeb total dingus we will talk about him in a few minutes uh there is a scene here with joanna and kareem the parking lot attendant that i would rather talk about in one fell swoop when we get to the good stuff with joanna later in the episode if that's cool with you yeah just a, again loose ends all around loose the loose ends. end of ali the loose end of kareem and we're going to start to tie some of those up. we will dig very deeply into that very shortly but first let's go to e-corp where the fbi has taken a floor of e-corp it turns out i yep. didn't know about this until this episode no, it, it is uh, it is something that it becomes very clear and important in this episode, I think, for the hack that is being set up via Angela. Yeah, so we see that Dom is there. She does not like that a random E-Corp employee is on this floor. Even though he works for E-Corp, you do not have access to this floor. She's still hanging out with her lollipops. That's her jam. She likes that. Maybe jam-flavored lollipops. Wow, that's an interesting idea. You should you should, you should should market that. I should market that. We find out that... Uh, Raspberry pie flavor. <laughs> yes, that would be really good. We find out that Dom and her colleagues are going to be going to China. We also find out that Dom DiPiero is a bad flyer. They're going down to Chinatown. Yeah, she doesn't. She likes to puke. So bring your shoe, your rain shoes, and wear a raincoat. A raincoat uh, and nose plugs. Nose plugs. That is so gross. She's gonna puke up someone's nose, Josh. Yeah, that's what's gonna happen. No, I think it's because the smell is going the to smell. be so bad. Okay. So let's block that out. Let's it's do everything we can. It's the smell. Yes. Uh, yeah. So the smell is going to be really foul when Dom DiPiero takes flight. Uh, some other things that are a little foul right now. If you didn't notice, uh, that does appear to be Mobley is on one of the pictures on the laptop that Dom's colleague is looking through. Yeah. Isn't she saying something like, how hard are these guys to find? And there's <laughs> Mobley like right there on the computer. Mobley looking suave AF, Josh. Of this course. Is, this, is, this is our son. Looking Not to be best. self-congratulatory or anything, but yeah, our son looking real good. Looking real good. Looking, yeah, looking real good. Yeah, this is a, her colleague is up to some uh, very background type stuff. A lot of the passing details in this scene seemingly are important for later. One, that that, as you said, DDP is complaining about the the security on the floor being so lax. She even says, I hate working here. The security is so lax. That is clearly a setup for Angela's ability to do something later, that Angela might be able to just show up on that floor as an evil corp employee, not a a bureau employee, and put something in play that the security is so lax that that's something that can happen. Uh, Her friend also describes a dream that she had, which will become unfortunately prescient, I think, or connected at least to what happens at the end of this episode the dream is about a man at the bottom of a hill wearing a surgical mask just staring at her we find out ddp herself not really interested in dreaming so this doesn't seem to be very interested in sleeping either we've seen ddp up at night really you know wide awake at four in the morning and then she's getting ready for work so of course she's not going to dream if she's not going to sleep 
watching engagement shows on television, herself having spurned an engagement, which we'll talk about. So Interesting. DDP is a fascinating character. They're really doing a good job of building some details up with her. When we get to the great scenes that she has later in the episode in China, I think there's one key detail that, that they go out of their way to mention that I think is it may end up being important uh, pertaining to Teaneck, New Jersey. So let's make sure we hit that again. But yeah, I think this scene is setting up. They're going to go to China. This stuff is going on with her friend in the background, and her friend is not finding. Uh, she's talking about they were having Joanna Wel- Wellick under surveillance. They, maybe she went to a yoga class. We know in the past, in last episode, Joanna Wellick, when she met with Kareem, said she lost her tail by pretending to go to a yoga class. So that's a cat and mouse game we're seeing play out on both sides. I like that a lot. I, I feel bad for DDP's best friend. I, I feel I, we don't have a name she for her. so excited to go to China. We don't even have a name for her. I, what should we, we can't just keep calling her DDP's best friend. No, no, but I mean, I don't know. What do we call her? A mask dreamer? <laughs> DDP BFF? DDP BFF. Okay, yeah, <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm good with that. DDP BFF. Uh, all right, so we'll see more on DDP and DDP BFF in a little while. Darlene goes to Elliot's, asks, where's the she-devil? Elliot's mother is not present here. This is the first time, uh, or not, I don't know if it's the first time that Darlene is acknowledging the woman that exists in Elliot's house, but she has yet to di- identify the this person as Elliot's mom, as her own mom. She just calls her, where's the she-devil here? Still open-ended if that is not indeed Elliot's mom. Yeah, she-devil, very pointed words. That could be Elliot's mom, but it could be any authority figure, female authority figure that's at whatever place Elliot is. A nurse ratchet, that, as you've been describing. Yes, a nurse ratchet type. Yeah. Darlene has visited before. We know uh, Elliot has said that to Krista in therapy. Darlene comes to visit sometimes. So we know that that's happened. And the fact that Darlene's been there before, she may have interacted with whoever this nurse ratchet was. So I don't think that it's dispositive that this is definitely Elliot's mom. Darlene is wearing red, important color that we've tracked throughout in in one of the things that goes on in this episode, especially, is that the red lights have led to death and lead to death. So there are red lights that also happen with Gideon. When we see red lights in the bar where Gideon is, he's shot. When we see red lights in the bar with Kareem, he's later murdered. We see red lights in the hotel lobby where everything happens in China. So Darlene is wearing red here, standing out very much. The other thing that's happening in this scene, Josh, and it's more prevalent later, but I did go back and rewatch some scenes that are happening in this living room, if you will, at Darlene's or at Elliot's mom's house, is that you hear a tick clock in the background. It is more prevalent later when we come out of the China scene and we end up in the scene. The ticking clock is very present. There's a grandfather clock in the background. The interesting thing, and this could just be a production thing, but in the first scene with Elliot and Gideon, where Gideon comes to visit, that clock is not heard. It is also not seen. We don't have the camera angle that we've had in these other episodes where the clock is visible, but you don't hear the ticking clock in the scene with Gideon. You do hear it in these scenes with Darlene. And whether that's to indicate that time is ticking that they're on a schedule here gonna say yeah yeah i mean i don't know if if that's the the the, just the the subtle point that's being made that they're on a schedule or that some big reveal about this illusory world is on its way we don't know but there that is an interesting thing that's happening in this scene that we hear the ticking of the grandfather clock we did not hear it in the scene with gideon now granted we didn't see the clock on in 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 a scene in that scene but presumably it hasn't just recently been moved into the house so it's it's there it's there in the background of this scene Elliot's invoking Angela 
in this. Uh, Darlene saying that she wants Angela involved. Elliot is not interested in that. Not feeling it. Not a, not a big fan of bringing Angela into this. Obviously, Elliot's still very protective of Angela, as he's always been. Uh, and I can't blame him. You know, I wouldn't want my friend involved in this either. That being said, she really is the best option here. And Darlene knows that. Yeah, and Mr. Robot knows it as well. Mr. Robot shows up. Mr. Robot is saying, Darlene is right. Who better than someone you trust? And that Elliot basically just puts it at Darlene's feet and says, make this happen. So Elliot is not really thrilled with Angela being involved. At least it doesn't seem that way on the surface. But part of Elliot, via Mr. Robot, thinks it's a great idea. So who knows what Elliot's real feelings about this are, subconsciously or consciously. But part of Elliot, the part of him that is Mr. Robot, thinks it's a great idea. Want to meet a new character? Sure, let's do it. Let's meet a new character. We're going to have to go all the way to China to meet this Taking new down character. down to Chinatown. We're going to go down. We're going to go. We're going to be mean motor scooters. We're going to Chinatown. We go to China. We go to Beijing. Dom DiPiero and the FBI heading on over to take a meeting with the Minister of State, State Security here in China who – oh, wait. That's not a new character. We know who this is. Oh, wait a minute. Really? We've, we've met the Minister of State Security in China before on this Un- show? Unbelievable that White Rose, who has already been a character of so much mystery with so many different aspects to that personality, also apparently goes by the name of Minister Zhang, is the Minister of State Security here in China. Pretty high-ranking official for the leader of the Dark Army. Yeah, very high-ranking official for the leader of the Dark Army. Essentially, the highest-ranking government official when it comes to information and security. So, very good position to find yourself in if you're the head of a malicious hacker group. That's a really, really great gig if you can get it. Yeah, and it's fascinating how this is a little bit foreshadowed. Because when DDP is riding down the escalator at the airport, down a hill, if you will, she sees two guys in the same Dark Army masks that uh, Darlene and Trenton saw in season and one right, when the they were they were essentially kidnapped in the limo and taken to meet up with with Cisco, uh, aka not Turtle from Entourage. I know, but yes, got called out about this. Uh, we on know our it's not Turtle from Entourage last week, but I will call out that person and say we have been calling Cisco Turtle from Entourage as a gag for pretty much the entire run of Mr. Robot podcasting here on Pusher Recaps. Yeah, it, just, I did the same thing, uh, calling Macbeth a gag instead of Hamlet. So <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that we'll was get a, into that, that as was well. A great that, that, joke. Really funny joke. That's going to really come back on us in this episode as well. Absolutely. All right. So Minister Zhang, that is a thing. There are, you know, we can talk about White Rose as a character and Minister Zhang and where the two meet. Uh, but Minister Zhang is the person that the FBI are here to talk with and to get their intel on the servers that were encrypted here as part of the five nine hack. Uh, DDP is the person who first brings up the dark arm army really kind of brazenly the uh, her superiors are trying to sort of finesse their way into that aspect of the conversation because it's kind of a touchy subject ddp does not seem to have a lot of time for social bs yeah let's talk about this right now because it isn't just that she doesn't have time for social bs as we've seen her telling people on the scene you really shouldn't work if you're sick you're going to get everybody else sick her telling the steel mountain guy that steel valley is kind of a terrible name she's not the biggest one on social graces the cdp i like that about her this is the example of where not being big on social graces 
is highly problematic in my opinion, and we'll definitely talk about this, but in my opinion, she sort of signs her own death certificate by speaking up about the Dark Army in the way that she does. It is played out across Mr. Zhang, a.k.a. White Rose's face in this scene. He goes from very formal and very happy to super sour. I don't know how he would dare be sour, but look at the sour look on his face. He just like ate Dark Army. all of Sansa Stark's lemon cakes in like yes. one fell swoop, just in yes. one giant bite. Yeah, I wouldn't want to play – I mean I would want to play poker with this guy because even though I wouldn't want to play poker with him because he's clearly able to adapt a different identity and hide that from the people around him, he's not able to hide the, the lack of social grace that is showed by DDP and the effect that it has on him. I say he signs her own death warrant here because I think this is what leads to the hotel shooting at the end of the episode. I don't think that was accidental. I do think that was meant to take her specifically out. Oh, uh, yeah, of course, yeah, 100%. Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Hundo. So I think this is where that 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 plan is born. Right in this moment, when when Edie Wong's face changes from sour to sweet, and he says, "Of course, of course, we'll give you that access. Definitely." He's already made the plan to take her out. Yeah, and I mean, there's going to be a lot more between these two characters later in the episode that I think only bears that out even further in kind of uh, like a very darkly emotional way. Uh, so lots of really great stuff between these two characters in this episode. And I think you're totally right. I think that Dom floating this out there. I think that probably Minister Zhang was already wondering whether or not something would need to be done with the FBI that was coming to investigate this situation. But I think that she just like cements it right here with that line. I think now is as good a time as any to really start getting into the Joanna Wellick stuff. Uh, we already passed by a scene where Kareem from last week's episode, the guy who is responsible for the parking lot where Elliot woke up in Tyrell's car in the season one finale and Joanna has apparently been paying him off he mentions you know elliot by description at least so joanna is aware that elliot woke up in that car uh if not aware of more details we still don't know the full extent of what joanna knows um but joanna who really you know niche niched when sutherland said last week do not you know we should probably just kill this guy do not keep paying him we don't have the money to do it joanna said that conversation is over in my interview with stephanie cornelius in the other week she said that don't take that necessarily as joanna not being willing to kill someone i think at this point we have seen that she is willing to do just about anything she just likes to follow all of her options down to their natural conclusion and only pull that final lever when you absolutely have to joanna i guess feels like she absolutely has to after she has this meeting with kareem where she promises him i promise you you're going to be okay everything is going to be fine things are not going to be fine for kareem she sent sutherland in to kill that guy and not just kill that guy, Antonio, but to make sure that he knows why he's being killed. Yeah, it's terrifying. This is great, Joanna Wellick. I mean, just great, Joanna Wellick. The Joanna Wellick, I think we all speculated about the limits of when we saw snippets of her in season one. And great, she knows what I'm saying. She knows what's going on. She can read my mind scene with Elliot near the end of the first season. And the other great Joanna Wellick moments throughout where she's eating fried pickles as Tyrell is raging in the background. She is not a caged animal. She's a very practiced, reasonable person who will go apparently to very great lengths but doesn't want to be known as 
just some kind of murderer. She doesn't want to be known as that kind of thing, a ruthless murderer. She wants to be somebody who provides answers. And I think that that's fascinating, both for the character and in a meta way. This is not somebody that's just going to do something unexplained. She's interested in providing answers. Uh, that On a show that is a lot of questions and providing answers slowly but surely throughout, there's a lot of that. We don't want to leave people hanging and just be ruthless, that you have to provide people answers. Is Joanna's theory about why you, how you can behave so that you're not just a ruthless person. But she's killing him, or he, she's having him killed with her orders. And this is a lot different than just snapping a bullet into his head and ending his life right away. Some people would say that's a much more humane way to go about it than letting someone know that their death is coming, even if it gives them time to compute it. I think this is arguably the much more cruel way to go about it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, I don't know if there's, you know, not a, you know, there's probably not a great way to kill somebody uh, morally. It's probably, you know, that's, that's a tough thing to really, really hammer down. Uh, but at least in this sense, Joanna basically is saying like, well, if we just kill him instantly, we rob him of explanation. There's no time to process your final moments even though he's paralyzed he understands why he's dying so we let him die with answers if we don't do that we're ruthless murderers uh and then she's just singing to her baby in the same breath joanna wellick oh my gosh you are you are a loony for sure this is a very great character note for joanna wellick and as you said really in line with a lot of the stuff we saw from her in season one this is the most joanna wellick moment of the season so far yeah, and you're right. She wants to say she's not ruthless, but she's calmly hearing details about a murder that she ordered and then singing to her baby at the end of the scene. If that's not ruthless, Josh, I don't know what is. It's pretty ruthful, I think. Injected as ordered. It is pretty, yeah. Injected. How about the no problemo hat that, that uh, he's wearing in that scene? I like it. Good hat. Yeah, it looks. It looked. I looked pretty terrible. It looked looked like a very shoddy costume that was put together. And he's framing up some poor convict that lives on Kareem's floor. That poor guy. He didn't do anything. He didn't do anything. I mean, as far as we know, who so, knows? He certainly didn't kill Kareem. So this is. A, I mean, this is a very ruthless way to go about things. And Joanna's worldview is that it's not ruthless, as she's singing to her baby after hearing about a murder that she ordered. So. Whatevs, Joanna Wellick, you do you. <laughs> you do you. We'll talk more about Joanna in a second, but really quick, just to, I think, plant a flag here. This idea that Joanna has of robbing someone of explanation, giving someone no time to process their final moments. How does this link to the scene later on in the episode between Dom and White Rose? When Dom and Minister Zhang, who is kind of right on the edge of the White Rose personality, when Minister Zhang is showing Dom all of the the robes in the wardrobe and talking about a sister that doesn't exist. How much is that white rose providing explanation or getting his own explanation or her explanation as uh, she is giving Dom her final moments on earth before knowing the next day going to take that person out? Is it a similar thing you think? I think so. I think that's a great observation. I certainly took it that way. I certainly took it as this is the calm before the storm. I already have planned to kill you. I'm already setting this up. But I'm going to talk to you about it, and I'm going to give you some details that you know about me that really aren't true. He slips out that it's his sister's clothing. That's an easy detail to track down and verify. It seems way too sloppy for the methodical person we know White Rose to be. So the fact that he lets that detail slip as Mr. Zhang and that Grace already knows that it's fake by the time that the murder or the, the, the shooting happens, I think that it's, it's very similar. Now, 
what for White Rose and Joanna Wallach to share a worldview is not that unusual for them to directly share this worldview. Uh, there's a character note, I think, more than a, well, how would he know that that's how Joanna Wallach feels? I don't think there's supposed to be direct lineage. I think it's more symbolic, and I, do, course, think that yeah. the connect, I do think the connection is there. I do think that that's a big part of it. That Listen, I, I am going to end you, but I, I want to kind of download you a little bit before that. I want to know your secrets. I want to get inside your head a little bit and learn some very personal details about you. I want to eat your brains and gain your knowledge. I want to eat your brains and gain your knowledge. I want to know about the people that know about me or that are investigating what I'm doing. And I, I need to know. I, ultimately, I think another part of that was that whether or not he, he, she signed the death certificate when she brought up the Dark Army in that first meeting, I think the details that, that she reveals to him, her singular focus on the FBI, the fact that she very clearly is a little more dedicated and committed. I think that that pops up when she breaks decorum and mentions the Dark Army in the meeting. I think that puts her on his radar. I think the conversation that she has with him here goes further down the road in terms of sealing that death warrant. We hear about her murder. We'll, we'll get into it. If we, and we can discuss the whole scene now if you want. But we hear the details in this scene that I think make it more clear that this is a dangerous person to the investigation. He doesn't, if he doesn't want this investigation to proceed, she's a high-value target that needs to be taken out. All right, so we'll get into DDP in a bit. Just to wrap up Joanna Wellick's story in this episode, two other major things or at least notable things happen with her. She gets another package. We already saw that she got the mystery phone earlier in the season. Now she's getting a baby rattle, a silver baby rattle. Looks kind of expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, looks like a nice little baby rattle that she's got there for her child. Later in the episode, toward the end of the episode, the mystery phone is going to ring. She is actually going to be around to field the call. There is going to be no speaking on the other end of the line. Some heavy breathing. Um, some <laughs> sounds that sound like they are from the same phone call that Elliot fielded with Tyrell earlier in the season as well. At least that's how I read it. Yep. Um, and certainly you hear the same sirens that are happening outside of Joanna Wellick's home on the other line of the phone. So if that's Tyrell Wellick or whoever it is that is on the other line, that person is right next to Joanna Wellick, basically. So if that is Tyrell, Tyrell is not far away right now. Yeah, and there are some there are some things to talk about with that. First and foremost, it is weird that Joanna Wellick is under FBI surveillance, quote unquote. But somehow mystery packages are going to her house and being delivered without the feds looking into it. That is Tyrell. He's able to get very close to the house without anybody really looking into it. We heard that they investigated where the rattle package was sent from. They looked into tapes at the post office. They didn't find anything. It was probably sent from a local mailbox. All signs seem to be pointing that if this is Tyrell, he's local. And it begs the question or invites the question, I should say. Where is Tyrell if he's local? Where could he be hiding out? And I'm wondering, Josh, is Tyrell one of the last places we saw him? Is he at Elliot's apartment? Ooh, that's cool. I like that. We've gone to Elliot's apartment this season. We don't know exactly why we haven't gone to Elliot's apartment other than Elliot isn't there. Do we live in a world where Tyrell Wellick is taking Flipper out for a walk every night? Oh, my God. Well, I feel like somebody would recognize him. Uh, You would think. Maybe he's grown a beard. I could see Tyrell just being on lockdown in Elliot's apartment for sure, which would be that, you know, that could be the reason for the knock on the door. Like, hey, I've got my stuff. 
all right, I'm here. Um, I guess I'm just camping out here for a while. Uh, that would, I mean, and then you can imagine that cold open of the five or six weeks or however long it's going to end up being that Tyrell is just slowly losing his mind inside of Elliot's apartment, the place where Elliot has lost his mind many times before. That would be really fun to see. I like that. I think that's a good idea. Well, I, I mean, I thought about other locations that we know the two that, that, that Tyrell has hasn't been involved with. That he's not at Evil Corp. He's not going back to his office. I don't think he's living on the roof where he murdered Sharon Knowles, Josh. Probably not. I don't think he's living at Feels the Feels like Knowles. a bad place for him to go. Yeah, I don't think he's living at the Knowles homestead with Scott just s- s- sipping, sipping drink. Maybe he's sleeping under the floorboards. Yeah, he could be sleeping under the bridge downtown with the hobo that he used to beat up. Or he could be sleeping in Scott Knowles' bathroom. Yeah, he could be. That was a very important like lo- He does like it there. And that was a very large bathroom, if I recall. So there might have been room for that. Yeah. So, I feel like there's room. Yeah. So there are, there are places I remember in my life that Tyrell Wellick could be occupying. But it seems like a very, I don't know, thematically good one, as you pointed out, with him slowly losing his mind like Elliot did, for him to be in Elliot's apartment. I think if you work that, that hack together and you remember... Elliot Alderson, not wanted by the FBI, not on the most wanted list. His actual role, his apartment, not a scene, not a location that is known. It wouldn't be the worst place for Tyrell to hide out. It's a bad neighborhood. Uh, the neighbors are dead or not interested in knowing who this person was. Elliot was already, to, already able to be very low profile at that apartment. So I think that would be a good location. How long can we go before we get a Tyrell Wellick answer, before it gets really frustrating? I'm sure that there are people who are frustrated about it already. I'm still intrigued. But is there a threshold? Like, if we go two more episodes and we still don't have Tyrell, is that way too much? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think a lot of people are asking that. A lot of people are wondering, is the Tyrell Wellick reveal going to be the big reveal of the season late in, like, episode eight or nine? I don't know that it's too late. Uh, The people that are upset with the pacing are probably already upset with the pacing, and this has already gone too far for them that we don't know about Tyrell. I think we can drag it out. I I think that they're doing fine with how they're doing it. I don't think that it's... It's not annoying me. I think that the storyline is progressing in a way. I think that the the stuff with Ray and the FBI, it's a little bit of a sidetrack, but it feels like a pretty vital sidetrack to what's going on. It feels like really important. The Ray stuff doesn't feel as much like Vera stuff to me as season one, but I want to discuss that with you as we talk about the Ray scenes as we get to the end of the episode. But yeah, I think we can, I think we can keep on going with this Tyrell, how we're getting it a little bit more, a little bit more hints, a little bit more indication that he's now in New York uh, and that he's actually probably on the same street uh, in, in, at certain times at least. So he's, he's mobile in New York and hiding in plain sight. We've seen Darlene or other people, we've seen people talk about hackers hiding in plain sight. That's been something that's been said on this series and on this season, I believe. So it wouldn't shock me if Tyrell was hiding in plain sight at somewhere like Elliot's apartment. And not I- for nothing, too. You know, not to spoil another show that you and I do coverage of here, The Leftovers. Uh, but there's a similar idea of a character who is not present for a long time and then arrives with only two episodes left in the season and arrives with all the impact of a logic bomb or some other kind of explosive device. And it's really, really great and totally worth the buildup so Tyrell could show up really late in the season and depending on how that you know that piece is deployed how that move is made could be very very satisfying with the fact that Tyrell has been pretty absent so far this season Um, let's talk about another character that's showing up for the first time this season right now and let's talk about the effectiveness of said appearance uh the 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 Twitter maven the social media maven that is Ollie shows back up here 
at Prince Ali is back here. He is he's ready for Josh Groban night. That's coming up pretty soon. Back in the glory days when I told you I love you during Josh Groban night. Never change, Ali. Never change. I mean, honestly, and I said this to you offline. I feel like I feel like Mr. Robot has really outgrown Ali to the point that it, it really took me out. It was kind of jarring to see Ben Rappaport as Ali back on the show after all of this time away. Season two has been so dark. There have been such rare moments of lightness. I mean, there have been in its own Mr. Robot way some very funny moments, but they're always kind of like darkly funny. There's always a, a tinge of sadness or darkness or, you know, some sort of depressing element to even the funniest scenes of this season so far Ali was such a schlub and such a schmohawk and such a you know just a complete weird sort of incompetent character throughout season one that I think he represents sort of a more innocent time in Mr. Robot's run that to have him here just felt very strange but certainly important for what's coming forward I mean he is the person that convinces Angela that yeah this whole thing with the CD is still an issue that needs to be resolved this is still a loose thread Ali because he is Ali is not exactly a sophisticated spy. He is recording the conversation with his iPhone that's just straight up on the table. He's probably like, oh, she'll think that's super casual. She'll never touch it. That's not the way to do that, Ollie, but that is certainly the Ollie way to spy on somebody. Um, she asks him, have you been talking to the FBI? No. Yes. <laughs> so apparently three times. Uh, so Ollie has been talking to the FBI apparently, and that is enough for Angela to eventually change her mind about wanting to work with Ellie and Darlene on this thing. Yeah, who sent those goons to their lords, Josh? It was definitely Prince Ollie. This is this is something – you're right. The show has changed, and it's visually represented by Angela. Angela has changed. Angela is not the kind of person – if you even look at the way she's dressed, the way her hair is pulled back, the way that her face looks, just everything about Angela in this season – of Mr. Robot says that this is not somebody who drinks Bud Light and and falls in love on Josh Groban night. This is not her. She's, once you've had Semi Fredo, Josh, you don't go back to Bud Light and Josh Groban night. She Even when she drinks the Bud Light that he's ordered for her, makes a face like, oh my gosh, this is swill. She has clearly moved on. She's got the Tony apartment. She's got these beautiful things. Um, you want peacocks? She's got 53. Like these things that are, she's got really all these things in her life that aren't this guy anymore. So not only has the show really moved on from a dink perspective, but Angela has really moved on. And this is a relationship that I can't imagine this version of Angela ever having. And this scene really displays that his ham-handed attempt at the recording is so pathetic. And, well, my uncle's a lawyer. He said uh-huh. to have any, <laughs> any tough conversations recorded. She gets the FBI detail out of him right away. Uh, she's running out of the scene at that point, storming off. I've had it with this guy. She's got his resume in her pocket. It's pathetic. And this is just not somebody that should have ever been on Angela's level. Uh, Elliot did say Angela had bad taste in men and that he was worried to see what would come next after Ollie. So that's a big part of Angela's story is that, yeah, this was a dink. This was a, a loser guy. That he, This is the, the guy that, that, like George W. Bush's decision points and Josh Groban and Maroon 5 and whatever – But this is also a guy that is mostly harmless compared to the sharks that Angela is swimming with right now. And we see that Ali is still mostly stupid and harmless. And Angela is in much deeper and more dangerous waters right now. 
Yeah, so we'll see how that's all going to play out. It, Angela's story is moving in a very interesting way for me right now. You know, so one of the characters that I was really skeptical on moving into this season, but I really like where they have her positioned at the moment. And I hope that that's it for Ollie. I don't really need to see Ollie ever again. Oh, you're going to see him again. He's going to be dead next time you see him. I know. I, you know, maybe that's something, but I feel, I feel like you could just let us, you can let some characters just go. You know, some characters don't have to come back. I think that you could have this be Ollie's final scene i don't think that you really need to resolve the alley thing the grubbin never bothered you anyway no the grubbin always bothered so me let it anyway go. Is that what you're let it go let it go all right let's talk about dom and white rose uh dom finding the room filled with clocks which is just very very i don't know it feels like something you would find in the overlook hotel uh it's just a very scary room yeah it's the the room full of clocks yeah, it's like something it's, out of I don't know, like either Pink Floyd time or uh, something out of Alice in Wonderland or Doctor Emmett Brown's uh, house. There's just a lot going on with these clocks. Lots going on with the clocks, and Cold here play. comes. <laughs> yeah, I saw Sparks when I saw White Rose and DDP hanging out. Uh, but here comes DDP with a quote from what is this? Is this Hamlet that uh, that White Rose? <laughs> yeah, is Shakespeare's quoting? famous play Hamlet, Josh. That's yeah. what's being quoted here. No, this is Macbeth. This is Macbeth. Wow. This wow. Is, Once again, look at you, you know, a week or two early calling something that's going to be on the show. Your accidental Macbeth is looking a lot smarter right clearly now. Clearly why I did that. Obviously, that's what happened there. There was no other reason for me to mention this. I'm looking forward to hoping, hopefully hearing from our Shakespeare expert on uh, after this podcast is posted because this is a very famous monologue. I don't want to get too far into it. When we were watching the show, I said... Now, wait a minute, that's, that's Shakespeare, that's Macbeth. And this is the monologue that Macbeth essentially delivers after he finds out that Lady Macbeth has been killed. Uh, spoiler alert on Macbeth. Sorry about that. That's all right. Yeah, so he delivers this, and it really is essentially about what, what DDP sums it up. It's about the... the the it's about life it's about what happens when, when you're just kind of going through life and ultimately it's it's about the the end the end lines of this famous uh, soliloquy or monologue whatever you want to call it is life is a tale uh, or it's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing and that is uh, that is i think in the steve martin movie la story there's a lot that is played with there that this is a very famous monologue that's been featured in a lot of different things the lines from the monologue have been used this isn't a couple of these lines are in hamilton josh uh, and in many things that are still very prevalent in pop culture um, the the signifying nothing is a david foster wallace uh, short story book title that i have so uh, their short story title that is that is, it's a very, very well-known Shakespearean monologue from Macbeth, and it is a soliloquy, I should say. And yeah, this is a, this is essentially what DDP says. The nature of it about the about the nature of life. She she, she sums it up like, well, I guess I'm going to buy a watch now. You know, <laughs> yeah, uh, I better. Buy, I really got to invest in one of those. Yeah, because because White Rose sort of quips it and says. As each second passes, I push myself to keep moving. Uh, it's a constant reminder of mortality. And that's, that's the, I've, I've got to invest in a watch now. She's kind of playing it cool off the cuff. Like, oh, okay, yeah. So you're really thinking about the fact that life is short all this time and that there's not a lot of meaning to it, so you better work to make it. And that's ultimately what they're talking about. But it's fascinating knowing that her clock seemingly is about to tick out uh, the day after this party. 
I thought that you were going to say that her clock is from Kmart while White Rose's clock is from Germany, and there should be a pretty serious price difference between the two. Yeah, that's also happening. I think there's some there's some speculation here why she brings up Teaneck and Bergen County, New Jersey. If I'm not mistaken, that is not the same place that Elliot and Darlene are from at all. I think they're from a, a much different county. I don't know how to pronounce it. Is it Gloucester County uh, or Gloucester? I don't know how they would say it in New Jersey, but I think that that's where they're from more southern New Jersey, and she's from right outside the New York City area. Okay, but she's also a Jersey girl, yep. much like Angela and much like Elliot, who is a Jersey guy. Yeah, and much Jer- like Darlene. A Jersey boy. Much like Darlene, a Jersey boy, yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah, so Man, they, the they are the four today. seasons when, when the four of them come together. Uh, so we have this six gr- musicals we've mentioned so far yes, in this podcast. Yes, we're, we're doing a really good job here on the musical count. Uh, you know, the clock is ticking. All right, so we have DDP and White Rose. They're going to have this really great scene where White Rose seems very interested in hearing about Dom's life, about hearing about Dom's backstory. This all makes a lot more sense, yeah, when you know that the FBI is going to get targeted and shot at at the end of the episode, presumably uh, as ordered by White rose i guess you know do we stop short of saying that that is definitely a white rose call who knows it certainly seems like white rose is going to be the person who is pulling the trigger or at least ordering the triggers to be pulled on the fbi but the night before all of that happens white rose wants to hear about dom's life dom talks about why she joined the fbi it's personal which is precisely why white rose is asking um it's sort of a love story dom talks about how she was dating somebody who she thought was the one and that person proposed to her and then she not only didn't answer the proposal in the moment but just walked out and never came back uh dom instead chose a mid-level position with the fbi instead of a happily ever after with the person who she deemed to be the one um i don't know if that fully explains why she joined the fbi yet i think that that is still a closely guarded thing because I walked out of the back of this restaurant when I didn't want to be engaged, and there was an FBI surveillance van right there, and I realized, no, yeah, we don't that know exactly like why. That feels like the unused pilot for Alias. <laughs> well, let's keep it unused if we should. Can we do that? But yeah, yeah we can do that. that is, there's, a very, there's a very deep thing that's going on with DDP. The other thing is, and Mike Bloom pointed this out. We, we observed this. Mike Bloom also pointed it out. She's very careful with her pronouns when she's talking about this engagement. She says they got down on one knee. She doesn't say he or she. I think I've seen a lot of assumptions that some man drove her to this. I don't think it's safe to assume that. Um, we saw her in some sort of cyber sexual exchange with someone earlier, but that, that could be anybody, of course, in cyber sex. It could be a woman behind that name. It could be anyone. So we don't 100% know why she was very specific with her pronoun choice there. It's entirely possible, of course, in this day and age, and even in that day and age, that who she would have been getting engaged to would have been a woman, not a man. So I don't know if it's a character that we may have met before or not. I think there's possibility there that it could be somebody else that we know. Uh, She was a third year in law school. It's a few years later. So this could be a character that's already in our story. It doesn't have to be a lawyer. Uh, She just says she was with someone she thought was the one. So it does. Are you trying to tell me you're shipping Darlene and Don DiPiero right now? DDDP? Yes. <laughs> not pre- not precisely, but I triple just, DP. The triple DP. I don't the, the diner is di- yeah, the triple DP. Yeah. Uh, I don't <laughs> it's think, funky and we're finding it. Yes, I don't think that that's there uh necessarily. I just think that it's an open question and I do think 
I do think, as you pointed out, the open question of how do you get from walking out of the back of that restaurant to the FBI, that there's not a direct line there. She just basically says, instead of choosing marriage, this is what I chose. Which is very in character for Dom, who, as we've uh, observed already, for a woman named Grace Gummer, does not have great social graces. And is, you know, somebody who is pretty closed off or tells things like it is, but I think when it comes to opening up, probably would have some issue there. And we've seen her in her, in her private moments, seemingly struggling with loneliness. So I'm not surprised that she's not giving the full, full picture here to White Rose. But White Rose is not quite giving the full picture either. White Rose takes Dom to the wardrobe, shows Dom all of these dresses that we know that White Rose is probably wearing, but says these belong to my sister. She stays here when she's passing through town. There is no sister, according to Dom. So I don't know. I mean, we there's so many questions about White Rose, especially, I mean, we've already known about the Minister Zhang personality for a while the minister jang side of white rose at the very least since season one if not actually having a name and an occupation to apply to that character but we kind of just figured that is you know just a you know an an aspect you know it's just you know a, a disguise or whatever is it possible at all or is this just way too far outside the box that is there any sort of norma bates thing going on here is there a sister in white rose's mind and i only ask because That's the line that White Rose gives, but also the way that White Rose starts talking about alternate realities where the 5-9 hack didn't happen and becomes very overcome with emotion in that moment. Is there possibly just something a little bit off about White Rose? I think it's a fair question to ask. I will say one point in, in sort of counter to that is that we see the transition occurring in the earlier episode when she's having the conversation with Philip Price. She's putting on her makeup. She's putting on the white rose persona. She's putting on her eyelashes sitting at the the dresser doing all of that. So it is a more clear transition and a delineation than we see with Elliot, for example, when he's transitioning to Mr. Robot. Even though we do see him putting on the accoutrements of Mr. Robot in the flashback of last episode in that awesome horror film scene, we don't really see that with Elliot. It's one of those, when they see you, they see me. White Rose is a very different persona that presents differently to the world. And so I do think that there is a lot more of a formal line being drawn there. Maybe it is something more like a Norma Bates or that there is that there is some element of that to it that isn't very practiced or reasonable, that the transition is also a psychological transition. It is interesting to me, for example... That when we've seen White Rose in every conversation, we've seen allotted time to these conversations, uh, and they've, they, the watch has beeped. In this scene and scenes with Grace Gummer, time is of seemingly no, uh, uh, no, no ma- matter until the very end when the clock strikes midnight. And then you wonder, is, is, the, is she being rushed out because he has to switch over to White Rose for some reason? He basically is saying, speed the plow. We've got to go. I have to go at midnight. Please, you go back to the party. Not the party is ending, but midnight is a very key time for those transitions. That's when carriages turn back to pumpkins and so forth and so on. So – 
I don't know. It is that the interesting thing to me in that scene was that there there wasn't a time limit to it per se. They could wander between rooms. He, well, we, it was it was about ten minutes because Dom goes into the clock room and eleven fifty yep. is on the clock, and then obviously the clock strikes midnight. So you wonder, did White Rose have ten minutes allotted for DDP? Possibly, it's possible. Although I don't know. It, it, this is we've never really seen White Rose a lot that much time to anybody. The the previous this is the longest conversation we've gotten out of BD Wong, out of White Rose. And so it is fascinating to see that this is the chosen point to do that and that it wasn't a three minutes and you're done. Uh, I hack people, or you hack people, I hack time. I'm not sure if there was hacking of time going on here, although it did seem to have an end point with the midnight. So I, as far as the multiple dimensions go, I didn't know what to make of that. I wondered if it was if it was Reddit baiting, if it was internet the baiting. The alternate realities? Yeah, if that was internet baiting to a certain extent, basically saying, uh, like, oh, uh, the, the contemplation moves me very deeply. Uh, it, you know, that they're, oh, I believe there are alternate realities. Like, is this Lindelofing? Is this, like, is this just throwing details out there to introduce yet more analysis online about the story? Like, maybe there are alternate realities. I like your explanation more that people live in, in, in two shaded worlds, that people yes. like Elliot, that people like White Rose, that people like, uh, that people like Ray uh, have different personas in different worlds that they represent. One thing I will say, and the only thing I'll say about this is we know that White Rose was heavily involved in, via the Dark Army in the 5-9 hack. We have speculated throughout what White Rose's ultimate agenda with this 5-9 hack would be. And we know that White Rose did have an ultimate agenda. We know that White Rose is at odds with Philip Price over some of this. That Philip Price wants to use quote-unquote her and that that quote-unquote Bitcoin strategy is going to take six months and White Rose doesn't have the patience for that. And that they can't shut the quote-unquote factory down ever. And so we know that there's something larger in play here. We don't 100% know what that is, but it's possible that the 5-9 hack, and we had Ollie talking about it in this episode. When he talked about Gideon, Ollie mentioned again, can you believe there are people out there who are speculating that the whole 5-9 hack was a sham, that there were these crisis actors that were, that were occupying these spaces, that it was manufactured for some reason. And if you want to talk about alternate realities, let's talk about an alternate reality where the 5-9 hack is not exactly how it seems to have played out that something bigger was going on this whole time that Elliot that White Rose is in fact excited about this because the alternate reality is this plan where the hack never really happened that they knew it was going to happen that they planned for it to happen that it was all set up for them to take some greater action later and so that's the only other piece to this that I wonder about that is he saying alternate realities in that this 5-9 hack is a surface thing. It's misdirection. It's not really what's going on. There's an alternate reality where people that planned the hack knew about it and have a greater plan in place. That's what I wonder about. Yeah, and I think that just the idea of alternate realities, as you said, I think that there are a lot of people on this show that are playing out alternate realities. I think they're private personalities and they're public personalities. Those are two different realities. Uh, I think White Rose is intimately familiar with that. I think another possible read on that line of alternate realities and the contemplation moves me deeply is because White Rose knows that all things go according to plan, Dom DiPiero will not be on this planet anymore tomorrow. Uh, assuming everything works out as White Rose, assuming White Rose is the person who ordered the hits that occur 
the next morning um, and maybe saying, you know, I, I think about the world where the five nine hack didn't happen. This person who he seems to be fairly taken with is probably not going to get murdered in Beijing in that reality yeah. or or maybe in that reality, whatever stressors. And you got to imagine that there are many that are coming down to bear upon White Rose ah. don't exist as plentifully in the alternate reality where the five nine hack did not happen. Yeah. And you said bear. Uh, Chris Eden sent us some great feedback and said it's clear they're running with the Berenstain Bears alternate reality oh idea. Oh my god, so here good, we go again. So good call on that. But Chris also asked, is White Rose the hero in this story at the end? Josh, you're a big person. Are you a big you're a big guy who focuses on I am a on, big guy. Yes. Thank you very you're, much you're, for that answer. You're yeah. a guy who focuses on the heroes of narratives and the story that's being told. Do you see White Rose being positioned possibly as a hero in this story? Antihero, perhaps, you know, Benjamin Linus-esque, maybe, ah. uh, somebody who, who seems antagonistic at times, but perhaps has a streak of the protagonistic. Uh, I don't know. I think that, is that White the Rose shape is, of things to come. Yes. I think White Rose is a very complicated figure, obviously. Uh, I don't think that that's, you know, that's not a stretch by any imag- stretch of the imagination. I think that White Rose is somebody who is constantly revealing a new layer to us, and it's not going to be anytime soon where we understand the full, full picture of that character i think when all is said and done certainly white rose is going to have reasons that she can justify for herself as to why she has done all the things that she has done but for us will that all hold true or will it ring hollow will it not stay that is to be determined i think i i would stop short of calling white rose the hero of this story even uh you know trying to come up with a bold prediction for how this whole story is going to play out i don't know that there will be a hero in this thing i think that that is a big piece of the show and a big piece of the tension that is starting to develop between Elliot and Ray in this episode too about the shades of gray that exist between these two possible sides of dark and light I think that we're seeing that with Elliot in his struggle against Mr. Robot this season um, and how he has only just recently decided that I will go back to a terminal I will coexist with Mr. Robot at least for now knowing that I can't beat him is there a is there a person between the good Elliot and the bad Elliot who is some sort of you know combination of the two and there are shades of gray to that person you know things that are condemnable but still relatable things that you are rooting for even as they make you uncomfortable i think you're seeing possibly that kind of thing play out with ray in this episode as we'll talk about soon and i think certainly with white rose as well that is a character where that is being very well exemplified yeah i I agree completely and i think that i think that the other the, the one final key element of this is as far as the five nine hack goes, White Rose is the one character who I don't feel is actually being hacked or manipulated. White Rose seems to have her own plan and may be the, the master puppeteer, may be the, the person that's pulling all the strings. And I think that that's the most fascinating thing, that all these other characters, they may be the heroes, heroes of their own story. Elliot may have thought he was saving the world when he executed the 5-9 hack, but he was really just a pawn in someone else's game, perhaps, and we'll see that. Same goes for Tyrell, same goes for Philip Price. These people were all being manipulated by these greater forces that were in play, and White Rose is at the end of that chain. And so I think that's the fascinating part is when you look at the story and you really pull back to the thousand foot view, White Rose is is somebody who is in the position to either be the ultimate hero or the ultimate villain because they're seem, she's seemingly above everyone else in terms of her motives being outside of what's going on and her motives not being fully clear yet and being an independent actor who even as Philip Price is reviewing his part of the plan, which is above the street level of the plan 
White Rose is saying, yeah, let's, let's do our own thing. Like, this is not enough. I'm not waiting for that. So I think that that's a fascinating thing about White Rose as well. I think that that is something where when you talk about the larger course of the story, uh, she's in a unique position to be either the ultimate hero or the ultimate villain. Or somewhere in between. Or Who somewhere knows? in between. Or somewhere in between. And a lot of these characters are struggling with those kind of choices throughout this episode because Angela goes to visit Elliot in the next scene that we see. And Elliot wants no part of Angela being part of this. And Elliot, again, is saying, no, don't do this. And why are you here? And, and Angela is saying, Darlene was right to involve me. I want to be here. Darlene said it was simple. Elliot's telling her, don't put yourself at risk. He's trying to sort of hero uh, occupy. He's trying to occupy that role of hero to Angela, even though he needs Angela to be a hero to this whole situation. Yeah. And I mean, Angela's saying I was, you know, I was going to wait until I came here and talk to you. And if I was sure that you could get me out of this, I would do it. And I've decided. Uh, that being said, Elliot then goes on to tell her the reason why they have not been communicating over this last, these last five weeks is because the last time they hung out, she had said, I want you to be okay. And he's not okay. He is still seeing his dead father. His dead father is standing behind Angela right now. Yeah, that's a great uh, scene. That's a great, great part of the scene. Really great moment. Angela's saying, I can be a friend. I can be someone for you to talk to. So they talk about QWERTY and how QWERTY is getting fat. Yeah, thanks, QWERTY. QWERTY's like, hey, wait a minute. Cut to QWERTY saying, hey, I'm fine. What can I do? What kind of exercise can I really get? Yeah, Move me to a window. He's living a fat and happy life by the window is QWERTY. But yeah, so Angela is signing on for the F Society cause. We're going to see her later on go to uh, Madam Executioner's apartment where Darlene is still hosting F Society. Somehow she is still holed up there. That seems a little ridiculous to me. Uh, But Angela is going to be in on the ground floor of F Society. Are we buying that this this is an authentic enlistment in F Society, or is Angela, who we already know has been making her own types of moves within E Corp, is it possible that she still has her own motives for doing this? Could it be linked to Philip Price at all, or should we take this at face value? Yeah, a lot of talk about Angela and the feedback we're getting. Caleb Hunton wanted to know what we thought about the Angela storyline and where it's going after this episode. Uh, Chris Eden also talking about Angela and wanting to know what is actually going on behind the scenes. Um, there's just some really there's some really great stuff with Angela. Uh, Chris said, I, don't, I know a lot of people don't love Angela's arc, but I'm fascinated by her. I found it interesting this week that as she showed her true motives and joined the F Society team, her entire demeanor, particularly her wardrobe, got progressively darker. In the end, she's wearing all black. That tells me that although there are point of view, F Society really is a dark force in this world. And how awesome was the brief Elliot-Angela conversation? Why can't they just love each other, Chris says? Uh, (laughs) I, I think that that's a fair question. I think that they can at least be friends, as Angela is saying. But yeah... The Angela story is great, not only because it it has taken a little time to develop, and we've questioned throughout what is this self-affirmation about, but now that she's been brought in to the F Society inner circle, I think there's a possibility that everything is not as it seems with Angela still. Philip Price was priming her to act emotionless, so I don't think that she's necessarily the person that can directly be manipulated. She gets involved with F Society not because she wants to help Elliot, but because she makes a very logical analysis of what her own position is. And she basically says, look, if they find this out for me, the best case scenario is I get a plea deal and maybe avoid jail time. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to take my life into my hands and try to prevent this. And so this is an actualized Angela who really does want to do this. This is the same Angela who put the disc in there in the first place to avoid damage to herself and her family. So this is something that is, call it a flaw, call it a weakness, call it what you will. 
it's something that can be manipulated within Angela. So I do think the other interesting thing about this is, was this what Darlene wanted all along? She wanted Angela to join F Society. She cloned her computer, warned her to be concerned about the person with the disc. We don't know if Ollie actually talked to the FBI because Angela certainly hasn't. So why do they talk to Ollie and not Angela if they're talking to everybody there? Uh, it, it, or was it just because of his workstation? Or did Angela, did Darlene set something up with Ollie, posing as the FBI, to ultimately get Angela into this position where she could use her? Did Darlene hack Angela, knowing what her weaknesses were, knowing what her exploits were? Did she put her in this position? And I think that's a open question. And it's still open as to what greater role Angela is playing in the game of chess that Philip Price and White Rose are playing beyond and above the scenes of the episodes and the show. So we don't know what, what Angela's key role is, but she seems to be key to both sides of this or, or major players in the hack, the F Society team and the Philip Price team. Uh, she seems to be a key player in both of those sides, and we don't 100% know why. Is the factory the factory that spilled toxic information? Is it a Bitcoin factory? Is the larger strategy to control the world economy through Bitcoins and China? We don't really know, but Angela is a key player in all of that. And now she's a key player in F Society's plan. I think it's really great. I think it's a great place for this character to have gone. A lot of people were concerned about this character, but I think we're doing great stuff with Angela. I think so too, and I think, you know, that it's great to have her in this position this early on in the season, even though we're about halfway through the season at this point. Uh, it's, it's great to have her here in this sort of nexus between E Corp and F Society, how she is kind of in these two different spots. I just, I mean, I can see the day where Angela sells F Society down the river, save for Elliot, maybe. You know, it comes, brokers some sort of deal where she and Elliot can walk. Uh, so there's just a lot of different possibilities with Angela right now, with her being here at F Society, her agreeing to do it. I love that she's back in Elliot's orbit. Great to have Elliot interacting with her. Great yes. to see Elliot interacting with some classic characters again. So that's all, that's all really good stuff. Yeah, and you're right. I'm, it's surprising that that house is still available. They may be getting ready to abandon it. We also saw earlier that the F Society plan to do something at the bailout vote in D.C. is still in full swing. I couldn't tell. Look, they might have been building a drone back it there. It looked like a drone, yeah. Yeah, and she sent a new lieutenant off to, to execute that plan. So I'm sure we're going to see some fallout from that in a later episode. But the F Society group is, has sort of moved on largely from the house. When Angela arrives, it's just Trenton Mobley and Darlene. So it's the core team. Squad. Squad, squad goals. goals. Squad goals are achieved. So so, yeah, uh, she looks like uh, she may be being positioned to be the next kind of Sam Sepial that walks into a secured place, puts some kind of device down. The Raspberry Pi, in this case, will be like the, the portable cell phone tower, and she'll be the one uh, charged with setting it up. So looking forward to that in our next episode or the episode after. Looking forward to the Steel Mountain reboot. Yes, that's the gonna Steel be Valley, yes. <laughs> that's going to be great. Steel reboot. Yes, Steel reboot. Steel Volcorp, yes. All right, let's get back to Elliot uh, and his his time in front of the terminal. Now he is going to hang out with the system administrator. And, yeah, this is going to be proof positive that Elliot didn't really need this guy. He really only wanted to talk to RT because he wants to know more about Ray's site. And we find out that Ray's site... It's a pretty interesting place. Pretty interesting place to be. I care a lot about my online business. It's very private. Now we see why. Very scary place. Yeah, and Ray, you talk about the double lives. He doesn't seem like the kind of guy that's making a ton of money off of a black market Silk Road type exchange. Very clearly, that's what's been going on. Now the site has been down, and it's not been making the money, but it is very important to him for that reason. 
Whether he's a mid-level guy in that or whether there's, he's part of a larger organization, I think remains to be seen. No matter what, he's a Midland guy. Yeah, no matter what, he's a Midland City guy. Yeah, so there is there is that level of this that Ray is malevolent on some level, uh, or malicious, I should say, that he's he's a bad force ultimately, and that that the bad things are going on when Elliot's there with RT. We get the the great back and forth scene with them in Notepad. Uh, what are you doing, RT? Who having been beaten down by these guys? already clearly very paranoid of Lone Star sitting in the corner Lone Star seemingly Lone Star. yeah only one man would uh, would do that yeah it's it's uh he was born somewhere in the Ford galaxy I think this is a uh, this is something where Lone Star seems very dumb in the moment we find out later of course that he's not that dumb at all so that's great but yeah Elliot gets in the access that is provided to the site by RT RT by the way Josh can you tell me what RT stands for RT stands for Rat Tail. Uh, RT is known as RT and known as Rat Tail in the Mr. Robot writer's room, I have learned. I think that that is very, very cute. Yeah, well, perhaps not anymore. Perhaps yeah, now maybe he's, a little disgusting by the end. He's ripped yes. off RT, yeah. So the removed RT, yeah. So scalped RT. But when he signs in, he signs in his Dread Pirate Roberts. That's a great double kind of thing that's going yeah. on there. <laughs> Good night, RT. I hope you sleep well. I'll most likely kill you in the morning. Yes, so there is the there is the Dread Pirate Roberts of it all from The Princess Bride. And the connection being that anybody can be the Dread Pirate Roberts. Maybe Elliot is the new Dread Pirate Roberts in well, that yeah, respect. Well, yeah, now that RT's been de-rat-tailed. Yes, that, uh, that Elliot is the new DPR. So there's that. Dread Pirate Roberts was also the username of the guy who was the, the guy who ran Silk Road which is the website that this, uh, this emporium is based off of, this Bitcoin uh, illegal trade emporium is based off of Silk Road. And Dread Pirate Roberts was the username of the, the person who created and ran uh, Silk Road. So there is the connection there as well. Yeah, uh, also the connection of rat tails of an unusual size. Yes, uh, I don't think they exist. But no. yeah, that's also there. It's interesting that as, as Elliot's getting ready to log into the site, Mr. Robot tries to stop him. Yeah, he does, like, the whole pounding on the keyboard, being like, stop, stop, don't do that. Do not try to figure this out. Yeah, but that's very in character with Mr. Robot. Of Mr. Robot saying, don't get distracted. Don't get sidetracked. We are here for one thing and one thing only. We have the mission. We have other battles to fight. Um, that's very in line with everything from Mr. Robot. Do you think that there might be other reasons why Mr. Robot is telling Elliot not to bark down this particular tree? No, it's just this, this constant push and pull between whether Mr. Robot is a malicious force in Elliot's life, whether the times when he's a good change actor or, let's say, a good influence in Elliot's life, whether that's because he's self-preserving or whether he's looking to protect his own role, keep Elliot alive, keep Elliot out of jail, that sort of thing. You can make that argument any number of times, but this is a time where he recognizes a flaw in Elliot, that Elliot, once you open this door, you're not going to be able to, uh, to close it, that once you, once you start itching here, I know you're going to want to scratch it. We shouldn't do that. We should be above this. The argument later on between the two of them is you, you have to ignore it. That's what we do. And Elliot says, that's not what I do. Right. Uh, Mr. Robot basically says this isn't another coffee shop situation. Like Ray is not some coffee shop owner. Forget He's what not you saw. Yeah. He's not Rohit. This is not Ron's coffee. I'm thinking of us is what Mr. Robot says. And Elliot says, I'm thinking of the people in those pictures. I could help them. Mr. Robot is saying we have other battles to fight. And Elliot's response is what else is new? So this is a constant struggle between the two of them. When Elliot wants to go off and do something, 
that may in fact be harmful to Elliot. And Mr. Robot is trying to discourage him from doing that. What's fascinating about this is the, the meta story between Elliot and Mr. Robot, as we talked about on last episode, is that Mr. Robot quote unquote tested or recruited Elliot to be involved in the, in the F society hack, that that was, that was something that Elliot recalled in the, in the, the pilot episode. And that Mr. Robot ultimately was, was in, in part the, the Terry Colby kind of force that drove that was all part of the, the plan, but not necessarily. That the, the greater plan was something Elliot deviated from when he put Terry Colby involved. Was this something Mr. Robot wanted, but not the people who may have ultimately driven the hack? Who is driving whom? Who is controlling whom? Have Mr. Robot's goals always been pure, or are they more motivated more by anarchic things like you've talked about? In these scenes with Ray, Mr. Robot seems to be saying, look, we need to focus on the FBI. But is he saying that to preserve himself or is he saying that because he recognizes that this is bad for Elliot and that this is going to lead to a bad place? I think you can – the two can both exist. I don't think it's dispositive. You have to pick one. But I, I think it's fascinating, the Mr. Robot role with Elliot, that he tries to stop him. And once Elliot sees it, he's trying to talk him out of doing something about it. it obviously, the cat's out of the bag at that point. There, there, Elliot doesn't need to have burned Ray to end up where Elliot ends up at by the end of this episode. The fact that Elliot could burn Ray is what gets Elliot in the position he's in by the end of the episode. Well, I've always been the guy on this podcast who has, you know, championed the idea that Mr. Robot is anarchy. He is that aspect of Elliot, that he is the militant side of Elliot that wants to lead the F Society charge against E Corp, and that these paternal instincts, that these moments where he is being kind toward Elliot, where he is being fatherly toward his, uh, his possible son, you know, when he is being the real father figure, that that is all self-preservation. It's all self-interest. But I will concede that I think in this scene when it's Elliot in his bedroom and Mr. Robot is there and they are talking it through and Mr. Robot is saying we have other battles to fight. There is like a weariness on Christian Slater. There is a sadness there of when Elliot is saying, I'm thinking of the people in those pictures. I can help them. It looks to me like Mr. Robot hears that that it registers with Mr. Robot on some level of like, yeah, I feel bad about the 17-year-old who was abducted from Thailand and is now in Europe as well. That's not great. I get the sense that there is something that is not sitting well with Mr. Robot either. And one of the things that I'm wondering, as Mr. Robot was the guy who points out to Elliot that the two of us have to coexist. The two of us have to stop fighting each other. This battle that we're doing for supremacy over the other, it's circular. It's never going to lead to an end point. Our best option is to stop fighting each other and start fighting the real war that matters could we get to a point where mr robot in you know his attempts to bring peace about between himself and elliot between these two warring factions of elliot alderson could that aspect of mr robot the more anarchic militant side align with elliot in this moment eventually especially after the ass whooping and be like you know what Maybe we should go after Midland City. Maybe we should take them out, and that is a way of extending an olive branch with Elliot. So I'm looking out for that. I'm wondering if Mr. Robot is eventually going to come around, and maybe not even too far down the pike, uh, is going to come around and see that what Elliot is talking about here actually makes some sense for him to execute on as well. Yeah, and of course the the really uh, deep connection there between all of that is that the person – who was encouraging Elliot to play chess 
and to get into this was Ray, that Ray recognized this weakness in Elliot, that Elliot talks to somebody, that that somebody was very important to him. He got the journal and he was able to read about a lot of this stuff. And we know in the journal, it says he's here, he's doing this, he's telling me this, and that we know Ray knows about all that and exploited that within Elliot to some extent that really kind of encouraged him to embrace that and to confront it and to welcome it and to, to acknowledge it and to really spar with it. And that was, I think, in, in some ways, that was Ray saying, like, let, let, let me, let me, let's get you in a more twisted, crazy place so that I can totally manipulate you to my will. I do think what's happened with Elliot and Ray does fit into that hack structure that Elliot talks about. I think Ray did identify Elliot's weaknesses. I think Ray has been controlling the programming as this has played out throughout. Ray knew from the start his first interactions with Elliot early on in this season that Elliot, you're the computer guy, right? Like, oh, you, you like dogs, right? Are you, you know, you used to have one, like stuff like this, the Maxine stuff. Ray has pleaded his own ignorance when it comes to computers, but that doesn't mean Ray's not great at social engineering. In fact, we've seen Ray be great at social engineering. He social engineers his way into a trust situation with Elliot. Mr. Robot rebelled against that trust situation when he thought Elliot was going to spill the beans to Ray about everything that they did. He was very concerned about that. But you're right. At some point, Mr. Robot compromised and said, look, we're always going to draw in these chess games, so we need to find out how to live together. And so so maybe Mr. Robot is changing a little bit. I think the other thing about Elliot and Ray is that Ray has that scene earlier in the season where they're playing basketball and Ray's observing what everybody is representing to the world at basketball. And he says, basically, like, those guys, they want to be seen one way. We maybe see them another way, and maybe the world sees them in a different way entirely. And so he's, he's already representing that he recognizes the way people present themselves to the world is not necessarily how they want to be seen. It may not be what the reality is. This gets into his dual nature. He recognizes Elliot's dual nature. And I think he says to Elliot at one point in an earlier episode, I've seen some dark shit. I've done some dark shit. I had to cleanse myself to fix this. And so he is, I think, manipulating Elliot throughout this, and he's using Mr. Robot to manipulate Elliot. The interesting question is, will Elliot's own interactions with Mr. Robot ultimately be stronger than whatever Ray is doing? And will that ultimately carry Elliot to a place where, as you're saying, Mr. Robot is saying, yeah, let's get these guys. Let's take them down. And I think that's the fascinating part of what's going on with Ray and Elliot, for sure. Ray is a super fascinating character. There's an interview up on Entertainment Weekly right now with Sam Esmail, creator of the show, interviewed by my good buddy Kevin Sullivan. And Kevin led off the interview by saying, what were the early conversations about Ray and the role he would play in Elliot's life? And this is Esmail's response in full. Ray, to me, was a character that I always had in mind to represent the Silk Road archetype. Meaning, if you think about the morality of something like a Silk Road, you're essentially creating a marketplace that anyone can do trade on, and you're just going to ignore what they're actually doing. It's actually free trade without any laws or limits. For Ray, he's the guy looking the other way. He's making a lot of money, but he's trying to ignore what's being bought and sold on there. We just thought that was an interesting moral gray area to explore with a character. I thought it would be an interesting intersection to have Elliot confront someone like that, who is a decent guy, but who could actually commit the atrocities that are on this marketplace. He's indirectly allowing them to happen. Elliot is trying to not be that vigilante anymore. He's trying to move away from that. I just thought, here we have two guys in murky areas in their lives, and 
they cross paths. What does that look like? What are the effects of that? So that's Esmail's answer for how the Ray character was kind of shaped uh, before Craig Robinson came into the picture, I'm sure, and just in the early stages of sketching that character out. And, you know, every episode we are seeing more layers to that guy. He is just becoming a more detailed character every time we see him. And there are moments where he is very, he seems like a good guy, you know, when he is talking to RT and being the guy who's like, I'm sorry that this happened to you. It's probably going to happen to you again unless you can help me out here, but I don't want that. And that feels authentic to me. It feels authentic when he's talking to Elliot and bringing Maxine there and talking about his wife who died all of these years ago. And I think what's interesting about Ray is he really does represent this idea that uh, you know, you talked about how White Rose could be the ultimate hero or the ultimate villain, but I think one of the more realistic possibilities is that there aren't ultimate heroes and ultimate villains. There are people, people who are who are capable of, of extraordinarily terrible things, as Ray seems to be, given his role here in Midland City, given the fact that he orders Elliot to get his ass kicked at the end of this episode, that he has seemingly killed RT, uh, is at least party to that. But I think also we have seen moments of extreme kindness from Ray. And this is a guy who, much like Elliot, who, much like all of these characters on the show, have huge flaws, but have huge points of power and pride as well. Uh, people that are capable of really great things and really terrible things. And Ray is no exception. That being said, the light that is being shined upon Ray's darkness is very, very, very scary indeed. Probably unforgivable, but I think that it's still representative of a guy who can be two things at once. And that is literally Elliot Alderson as well on the show. Yeah, 100%. And Elliot recognizes there's a similarity there because Elliot says everyone has their own conditional programming, their own if-then, a situation where if certain conditions are met, then a logic bomb blows up in their face. Is this Ray's moment or my own? This is what Elliot's saying after he's discovered what's on the Silk Road site. When he sees the sex traffic and when he sees the weapons that are for sale, hitmen that are for hire, drugs that are for sale, when he sees all of these things in that montage or that quick sequence, when he's really evaluating it, he's, he's wondering, is this a moment where I'm, I'm – the, the logic bomb has gone off in something of my design or his? And it's fascinating. And I don't know that that answer is there I think that that's um, – I think Elliot is debating that. He says if Ray's running it, why bring me in? Maybe he doesn't know. Ray is protective. Ray is kind. Ray is also dangerous. And that, that is 100% those two sides that you're seeing. I think we've seen that with Elliot throughout. I think we've seen it with Elliot in this episode. We haven't really talked much this podcast about how – the two people that have died, Gideon and Romero, that were more closely associated with Elliot, could have died at Elliot's hand. All signs still not pointing away from that, especially with Romero. So Elliot is the, also the kind of person that can be dangerous, even though he can be protective and kind with Angela. And maybe he doesn't really know what Darlene is up to. So Ray and Elliot are very similar, but Elliot also draws these clear moral lines, as we see from the first five minutes of this series. And so the question is, where is he going to draw these with Ray? Has he gone too far already? We know that he, at the end, when Ray shows up, Elliot, once he sees, when he sees Ray, is kind of like Ray, like he almost makes an appeal to him. And Ray basically just says, hey, you went too far. I told you not to look. 
Yeah, I mean, he really shouldn't have looked there. He should not have opened that door. And but is- but but did but did Ray want Elliot to look? Did he know by saying "Don't think of an elephant," Elliot would think of an Elliot elephant? Like, did he know that by saying "Don't look there" that he was ensuring that Elliot would indeed look there and that he would be able to get Elliot into this position? That's my question. Was Elliot orchestrating the social engineering type hack on Elliot, following the same five step process? Did he write this story? the whole time so that he could be Elliot's God at this point, uh, telling Elliot what to do if he's going to have him in captivity, controlling when he eats and sleeps, being his provider, all of that. Did he create that code to get Elliot into this position? Did he say, don't look there knowing Elliot would? That's interesting. Um, Maybe. I, yeah, I think so. I think so. You know, cert- certainly possible. Certainly Ray is proving himself to be somebody who is capable of that kind of uh, next level social manipulation. I think that that is something that we could see from that guy. There's just a lot going on with him. Uh, one of the really great, compelling characters that's been introduced here in season two. Yeah. I mean, I really think that, that he that he's running a very similar step with Elliot, that Elliot wanted to run the five stages, and that Elliot recognizing that the logic bomb stage, stage three, is part of the, the two-stage exploit, uh, it actually could be Ray's logic bomb, or it could be Elliot's. Like, this could be either way. This could be something that um, Elliot thought he was getting one over on Ray and doing this, and this went off uh, for Elliot, or it went off with Ray's hack, and so now Elliot is in a position, since Ray has written the script... And the story is going how he wants it to go. Uh, Ray can now launch the the preferred attack and have Elliot right where he wants him because he has the god level control. So I don't know. I think it's great. I think it's a great way for the episode to end. However, we skipped over the shootout, Josh. Of course we did. Uh, we've talked about it a lot already throughout the podcast, but that is the big climax of DDP's trip to China. She goes. It's the next day. It is the morning after her night with White Rose, hanging out with White Rose. Uh, we find out that there were no prints on the raspberry pie that was recovered from uh Steel Mountain, now called Steel Valley, because some some big some slob got his prints. Was that Bill? You think? You know, I think that that is one of the things that it could make you think. But also, I was wondering, could it be Mobley in uh, some kind of yeah a secondary role? Did he get in there and, and take care of this? We've certainly seen Mobley do that before. You know, we've seen Mobley at the bank. You know, and being like, oh, I don't know what's going on with their system when he is obviously the guy who is fudging the system. Yeah, but wouldn't he have taken the Raspberry Pi away if that was him? Wouldn't he have just removed it? I guess probably. So who knows? Either way, there are no prints on the Raspberry Pi. Yet another lucky break for Elliot Alderson. Uh, this is going to be the day that the FBI is going to be looking at all of the encrypted, uh, the encrypted servers and everything like that. Dom very uh, amazingly says, I'm going to need a lot of caffeine to survive this day. And as soon as that happens, shooting begins and very swiftly DDP's BFF is killed. RIP DDP BFF. <laughs> <laughs> LOL. Yeah, that is absolutely what happened. And and I think the other guy got shot too, right as he was eating some food maybe. So, and not only that, but the attackers themselves committed su- one of the attackers committed suicide right in the scene after Grace Gummer after DDP did get a shot into his his leg, uh, which tells you that whatever would have come from him after whatever he was worried about either revealing information or uh, what the 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 extraction or what the price that was paid for him staying alive and getting shot would have been was worse that tells you a lot about the people that he's working for or you know just extreme dedication to the cause also 
Yeah, like I don't want to give any more details up, so I'm going to shoot myself. So, But again, that shows about the people that he's working for in that it is a very important cause to whoever's doing this. I'm not sure if these two shooters were the two guys in masks from the airport who had previously identified Grace Gummer, gotten eyes on her at that moment in the airport uh, and known that they needed to take her out specifically. We don't know, ultimately, whether DDP is going to survive this incident, Josh. You pointed out to me, and we won't get into spoilers of other TV shows, but kind of goes both ways on this. You would think that there's plot armor because she doesn't die by the end of the episode and her story doesn't seem to be finished yet. But other characters in other shows uh, have been alive at the end of a big shootout of one episode and died at the beginning of the next one. Yeah, very famously on one of the great shows of all time that I shall not identify, but if you have watched that show, one of the final episodes of the final season has a similar deal, where there's this big climactic shootout, you don't know how it's going to end, doesn't look very good for some beloved characters, and basically within the next ten minutes, the first ten minutes of the very next episode, it ends how it would probably end, not very well. Uh, So there's also several, several instances in pop culture of the hero being outgunned, outmanned at every single turn, and suddenly some sort of deus ex machina swoops in and saves the day, and she is able to escape. Maybe that's going to happen for DDP. I feel like enough has been invested in Dom DiPiero as a character that this is not where we lose her. I would be really surprised if this is the end for Dom, uh, but Mr. Robot is the show that's built on surprising people, so also on that same breath, I guess I wouldn't be shocked. My guess, if I were to flip a coin and choose Dom lives dom dies i think dom's gonna make it here at least i think dom has too much interesting information valuable information against white rose is on the right track a lot of things are being confirmed for her in this moment i feel like and to just take her off the board after we've been watching her investigation with her being our eyes into the fbi storyline right as elliot is about to hack the fbi feels like you're taking that piece off the board way too early so i think that dom's gonna make it that's my call. What do you think? Yeah, I think so, too. I, I, I think that the, that's a good call. I don't think we're going to lose her at this point. I was actually pretty sure that she would stay around until you brought up the King of Kings, uh, until you brought up the uh, look upon my works, ye mighty, and fear me of it all. Uh, and I, until that happened, I was pretty sure that the fact that she doesn't die by the end of the episode means she's going to survive at the beginning of the next one, and we'll pick that up. But uh, this episode's crazy. We have four different cliffhangers going on here. What's going to happen with Angela and uh, the and the Evil Corp or, or the F Society? What's going to happen with Elliot? What's going on with Grace Gummer? Or where is Tyrell? Like we're leaving these stories wide open. So. For a show that was criticized or people had problems with pacing, I think business has really picked up. I think we're in a place where by the time we end this episode, a lot is going on, a lot of stuff is in play, and we should hit the ground running next episode for sure with one of the one of the great tense episodes. If we, especially if we pick up what's happening with Angela, and it's a scene by scene, blow by blow, her her putting that thing down. I don't think it's going to be presented caper style. I think it's going to be very stressful. I think the way that this show trades and the sort of thing we have that to look forward to. If you want to say look forward, yeah, I, I think so. All right, so wrapping up, any other bits of business? One that comes to mind for me is. 
news during last week's podcast, Antonio, you and I were really hoping that Careful Massacre would be released as a Blu-ray side or something like that. And literally a minute or two after you and I finished recording, uh, USA released the first eight minutes of Careful Massacre online. Probably the only eight minutes of that movie that actually exist, but that is available if you guys wanted to check that out, if you haven't yet. It's been around for about a week at this point. Yeah, I literally watched it while the audio from our podcast recording was uploading. Uh, it, it finished <laughs> before that was all done. So it's like, that's how much we were on it, and it's it, we, we thank you to everybody who who tweeted it our way or who sent us messages, put it on Facebook, wherever, uh, to send us that, because I know we were very interested to see it. I don't know that it really adds a ton to the Mr. Robot, uh, let's say, analysis. It's basically just a fuller version of what we saw in there. Yeah, you know, yeah. the only interesting thing is that there's there's a plot where an uncle has been essentially written out of a fortune, an inheritance, and believed to be dead, and then shows back up and is killing the heirs. And that's all it really is. Uh, in eight minutes, they manage to get a lot of profanity, a lot of drug use, uh, some extreme gore, some nudity. So an action-packed eight minutes, to be sure. All of the things we like out of life. Yes, absolutely. The, the, there weren't any musical references, unfortunately, but everything unfortunately, else was Everything else was good. Anything else for you, Antonio? No, no, I think this is it. I think that I think we should let it go. All right, let's let it go. Let it go. Hashtag DDP BFF. It has to be. Has to be. All right, tweet that our way. I'm at Round Howard. Antonio is at AC Mazzaro. Hashtag DDP BFF. That's going to do it for us on the Mr. Robot podcast this week. That's going to do it for me for the next two weeks, unfortunately. I oh, am no. going to be. Why do you save the bad news for last? I am going to be out of pocket for the next couple of weeks, so Antonio will be holding it down. We will have another person. And lined up TBD at this point, TDDP BFF. Uh, that is all to be determined at a future out. point. So I will talk to you guys again in a couple of weeks here after uh, the next two episodes of Mr. Robot. Antonio, don't break anything while I'm gone. Josh, are you checking yourself into some kind of facility to, uh, I, <laughs> to allow your sanity a little time to breathe? Is that what's happening? I am hopefully stepping away from terminals for the next two weeks. Maybe going not AF- AFK? Maybe not entirely am I going AFK, but I am mostly going AFK. I will say that even though I will not be on Mr. Robot podcasting for the next two weeks, this will not be my last podcast appearance within the next two weeks. So keep an eye out on post-show recaps for a little something, something that might be launching very, very soon within the next... 10 or so days, uh, go to postshowrecaps.com slash iTunes to subscribe to our main feed or postshowrecaps.com slash Mr. Robot iTunes, MR Robot iTunes for our Mr. Robot specific feed. Leave us your ratings, leave us your reviews. That's always appreciated and helps us out a lot in terms of people being able to find the podcast. You've all been great about that. Send us your questions for next time or send Antonio your questions for next time. Postshowrecaps.com slash feedback for our feedback form or Mr. Robot at postshowrecaps.com com is our email address. Anything else, Antonio? Oh, I'm going to have to do all the heavy lifting. Huh? This I is know. Be rough. Yeah. Better start okay. working out between this week and next. What are you, what are you implying that I can't just step hey, out of bed? you already it? said that I was a big guy, all right? So then you took it that way. The shot has been fired. The shots have been fired, and I am firing myself and this podcast right now. Take care, everybody. Goodbye.